Heavenly Father, would you bless uh, our time spent in your word and um, speak to our hearts and change us and move us from glory to glory as we become more and more like your magnificent Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Um, so as Sue said, we're going to be in this uh, beautiful uh, prayer of Jesus between now and Easter. Um, we're in the part of the uh, gospel, according to John, chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, known as the farewell discourses, or the farewell discourse. Um, this is the time Jesus was with his disciples at the Last Supper and spoke out some magnificent truths that are actually not elaborated in other places in the Gospels. It's a very beautiful time, um, a very beautiful uh, set of scriptures. Um, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the philosopher, uh, very personal writer about Jesus, uh, of all the Gospel writers, the one who seems to go most for the heart of Christ um, and for understanding the nature, the very nature of Jesus himself. And in this uh, really astonishing um, transcript of Jesus' prayers, we get a magnificent view, a perspective on Jesus' heart. Um, Amanda in the last service described it as a window into Jesus' heart, which, which I love. It also gives us, um, and today's five verses in particular, an amazing insight into his identity, the very identity of Jesus, and from that, our own identity and lineage and potential. And that's where I'd like to take us this morning. What we find in verse 1 is um, the Son of the Father, the Son of the Father walking in his own destiny. He is with his closest friends. They've had supper together. He's about to be arrested and go on that train of that, that runaway train, that un, impossible to turn back sequence of events that will take him to the cross. Um, I say impossible to turn back. The enemy still tried to convince him otherwise in the garden. And again, when he had a chance to deny who he was with the Sanhedrin and then with Pilate. But Jesus was so set that he would now go to the cross. And with all that just before him, still he prays like this, which in itself is a statement of his identity. Who but the Son of God could pray like this with that about to happen in the subsequent 24 hours? I don't know how you would feel if someone was about to arrest you and sentence you to death and execute you within 24 hours, but you probably wouldn't be praying like this. Um, you probably like to be. But this is Jesus himself. And he starts off, Father, Father, the hour has come. Now remember that we're now used to this whole thing about calling God our Father, thanks to Jesus who taught us the prayer, our Father in heaven. This was very new to everyone at this stage, the idea of calling the transcendent Yahweh Father, or Abba, Daddy, that, that idea was crazy. And Jesus' close friends were probably only just getting used to it, and they were probably getting used to him saying it. They certainly would be wrestling with themselves saying it at this stage. 
it's now gone into, happily, our practice, our daily practice as a church, which is wonderful. But the idea of that closeness, that intimacy, was very new. And for Jesus to reach out like that at this time shows his intimacy with his Father in heaven. And he immediately says, the time has come. The hour has come. He has a real understanding of his journey, his purpose, his destiny. He knows where he is, why he is here, and what's expected of him. And clearly, this has been an ongoing conversation with God, right? It's not the first time the Father and Son have spoken on this subject. Jesus has known all the time that this will be coming to him. We can, we can talk theologically about whether he's known it since birth, whether he's known it since um, being the young child who stayed behind with the uh, teachers when the parents were going back from Jerusalem and got into trouble with his mum and dad, or whether he's only really got to grips with us since the age of 30 when his ministry started. We don't know. Uh, we don't know. But for sure, he knows exactly what is happening and what's required of him right now. And he goes straight into, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. This is his prayer as he's embarking on this last phase of his earthly work. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Glorify, enhance, show in full majesty, reveal in true splendor. Reveal me in my true splendor, he says. Reveal me in my true splendor so that I may reveal you in yours. The son, he calls himself the son. It's that same intimacy. If you're my father, I am your son. That the son may glorify you. This is some beautiful dance, some symbiosis. Some, by glorifying his son, the father reveals his own glory. And notice the purpose of Jesus here. The son is magnificent the most magnificent human being that ever lived. Paul would write in Colossians 1, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And yet, even he is solely and uniquely about bringing glory to the Father. This is his work. And if it's his work, how much more is it ours? Jesus, himself God, a, a natural recipient and a natural exponent of the glory of God, he still points to the Father, at all times, points to the Father. And in verse 2, verse 2, you granted him authority over people. You granted me authority. He's speaking about the Son in the third person. You granted me authority over people. Points forward to the ascended Jesus at the right hand of God with full authority. And the message of eternal life points to the resurrection. And that's what he'll accomplish on the third day. But this glory that he's anticipating, yes, it's the glory of the ascended. It's the glory of the resurrected. But in verse 4, we're just going to leap to verse 4 for a minute. We'll come back to verse 3. He comes right into the here and now. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. So actually, incredibly, the glory that Jesus is looking to right now is the glory of the cross. Can you believe it? How can the cross possibly be glorious? But that is what Jesus is pointing to right now. Yes, he's, he, yes, he knows that in 43 days he's going to be ascended at the right hand and ruling forever. Yes, he knows that in four days from now he's going to be risen. Yes, he knows that. But he has a phenomenal journey to go through first. And he starts with, 
I have brought you glory on earth by finishing... Oh, he, sorry, he comes too. He centers in. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus is about to set his face like flint and finish the task. He's about to go through this unbearable physical and spiritual agony that we know about, those of us who follow him, to defeat the enemy, to win forgiveness for fallen humanity, and to put the world back on track for restoration. Strangely, very strangely, he's about to be lifted up and glorified on a cross. Now, probably most of you are well aware of this, but the cross was a, uh, an image of shame. It's not only death, but it's a criminal's death. It's a death with no honor. It is the most appalling death. It was the most painful death, but it was also an ignominious death. It was a death that no one wanted to be associated with. This was horror. And yet somehow Jesus says, I'm going to glorify you through this death. That's extraordinary. I have brought you glory by finishing the work you gave me to do. This is my end and this is to your glory. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. He will bring glory to his father in the most dramatic and horrific circumstance that the world will see as the most appalling and shameful end. But we know it's triumphant. And this is a really important thing to remember, that there is glory in the cross. Paul says in Colossians 1 that he will make a spectacle of the powers and authorities triumphing over them by the cross. That's why the enemy will throw every last attempt to keep him from the cross. He'll try and dissuade him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll even try and dissuade him when he's hanging there. He has one last go, doesn't he? He has one last go. Prove that you're the son of God by coming down from the cross. Every, every last ounce of energy the enemy has is to persuade Jesus not to go there. But Jesus goes there. And right now, as he prays to his father, he is setting his face like flint. And he says, by going there, I'll bring you glory. And what the world thinks is defeat will be the great triumph. Yesterday, I was at um, a confirmation service in the cathedral. It was beautiful, actually. And um, my godson was being uh, confirmed, young Laurie. And Bishop Tim was doing the confirmation. And he spoke um, about how to share the gospel of Christ and how difficult it can appear. And he said, actually, the gospel boils down to three things. It boils down to who am I, why am I here, and how should I live? And that if we have the answer to those things, then that is the gospel in us. Who am I, why am I here, how should I live? And I thought of Jesus in this moment. And he's answering the why am I here He says, I'm here to bring eternal life to those the Father has given me. I'm here to bring salvation and restoration to this world. He's also answering, how should I live? How should I live? In a way that brings glory to my Father. In fact, verse 3, verse 3, promise you we get back to it, covers both. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the why am I here? This is the how should I live? But the who am I remains. And it's that that I want to focus on for the rest of this talk. The who am I 
Jesus gets there in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, this is really, really key. There are three great miraculous revelations about Jesus' identity in the Gospels. This is baptism, his baptism at the start of his ministry, his transfiguration on the mountain with his three closest disciples when Moses and Elijah join him halfway through his ministry, and then the ascension right at the end of his ministry, 40 days after the resurrection, when he is literally taken up before their eyes and goes to be with his father in heaven. These are the three great miraculous revelations. The first two give us, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The same message both times. First at the outset of his ministry, second at the midpoint, at the baptism and the transfiguration. The voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. We are left, his disciples are left in no doubt. Jesus is left in no doubt. It's very public. This is my son, and I am very pleased in him. It is done for Jesus' authority. It is done for Jesus' encouragement. And it's done for our discovery and our understanding. Who are we dealing with here? We're dealing with the son of God himself. And now Jesus points to the third, the ascension, when he is seated at the right hand, in your presence, as he says in verse 5, in your presence where he'll have full glory. Now, of course, there's the small matter of the cross and destroying of death and hell to come first, but he sees beyond that to the restored throne. And here's the great thing. It is a restored throne and not a new throne. And this is critical also. This is critical also in our understanding of Jesus' identity. The throne that Jesus will occupy again at the ascension is not a new throne. It is the glory that he had before the world began. Remember, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Famous prologue. In the beginning, Jesus was there, before the world began, way back at the dawn of the age, Father, Son, and Spirit living together in perfect unity. God, relational at his very being, relational. Father, Son, and Spirit. This is why we're relational creatures, because we're made in his image. He is relational, Father, Son, and Spirit. The most unimaginable beauty. Think for a minute, the most serene, most profound, most exciting, most glorious existence that ever could be. Tim Keller and John Eldridge both call it the dance, the dance. This is what Jesus had left behind to come for us. No wonder he asked his father to take him home. I want to be back with you in that beautiful dance that we have, Father, Son, and Spirit, that glorious, glorious togetherness that sets the relational pattern for the whole universe. This beautiful relationship that, by the way, they still have when Jesus is on earth, of course, of course. And that dance is expressed in, just in, back in verse 1. Glorify me, that I may glorify you. Jesus isn't worried about being the center of attention. Everything he does points to the Father. But the Father, everything he says points to Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? The way the two just dance together and the Spirit joins in the dance. If I didn't go away, the spirit couldn't come. And it's because of my spirit that you can have the power to go into the earth as I command you to go into the earth. 
And before all of this, the Spirit of God hovered upon the waters to enable the creation. This is, this is magnificent. This is the depth of our belief. This is what is happening right now. Father, Son, and Spirit together have been always, still are, always will be. And we're invited to join in that dance. Because we know now who Jesus is, so the question is, who are we? Who am I? And that was Bishop Tim's question yesterday to Laurie and his young friends, but also to us. Who are you? Who are we? I've always had a profound sense of the Father's delight in me. I know not all of us have that, um, and I wish we did. I, I, I lack in many, many ways in my faith. <clears throat> but what I have never actually had to struggle with is that the Father delights in me. Amazingly, it stays with me even when I am a long way from being delighted with myself. I can be in a really nasty place, but I know that my Father somehow delights in me. I suppose this is grace. This is grace. It's not about how well I'm doing. It's about who I am. Why is this so important that we know this? It's because our identity, our identity, who we are, lies at the heart of everything we choose to do. What we do comes forth, and how we do it comes forth from our identity. Our identity is shaped by God for our purpose. He has a purpose for our lives, and he's made us exactly fit for that purpose. So our identity has been shaped by the purpose that God had for us since before the dawn of time. He says, Simon, I have a purpose for you, and for that purpose, I shape you as you are, as Simon and Sue and all of us. So when I know who I am, this drives how I behave and the actions I take. And I'm living, as a great friend of mine says, on purpose. I'm on purpose. I'm in my purpose. I'm working that out. So knowing the answer to Bishop Tim's first question means I can now discover the answers to the second and the third. By knowing who I am, I then can work out why I'm here and then how I should live. I have a great friend, um, the same guy who says this on purpose, actually. He's a great friend called Kai. Um, uh, he's a, a Dutchman. And Kai founded our business with me, with five of us. He now leads our work in the US. And we came to a very, very important time in our business. It was a very critical moment. And we both had a strong sense of God's calling and what we were to do with this business. But we were being opposed. And we were coming to a very, very tough meeting. I remember it very well. And I was flying into Amsterdam that day for a really tough session. And Kai was flying in from New York, from Boston. And I woke up in that morning, and there was a WhatsApp group going between those of us who were standing for where we felt the business should go next. And Kai, before he boarded from Boston, had written this beautiful encouragement. And he just said, remember who we are. Remember who we are. I thought that was it, was, it just spoke to me. It was so powerful. Now different people have different versions of that. But I remembered on that morning that I am a son of God and that, and that I had this purpose in my life. I'm not going to explain it in detail here. Over a glass of wine sometime, if you'd like to get it, I'll tell you the story. But suffice it to say that being rooted that morning 
in who I was was enough to carry me through the day. It is truly important. If you're a fan like I am of the great movies, you'll remember Gladiator. Gladiator is actually a movie of the Christ. It's an extraordinary story because it represents the journey of Jesus. So Jesus comes from heaven, becomes the, the man who goes to the depths of being sacrificed and then is restored and ascends again. We don't see the ascension of the gladiator, actually. It, is, it doesn't do it that much, but we do, see, we do see his eternal life. So it's a beautifully done film. And there is a moment right at, the, right at the crux of it when he's in the circus, in the arena, fighting. And he's been incredibly successful, incredibly powerful. And the enemy, the emperor in those days, rep represents the enemy in the story of Christ. And the enemy comes into the arena and in front of all the crowd says, because Maximus has been fighting with a mask on, you're to tell me who you are. You're to tell me who you are. And Maximus who was a great general who had been deposed by the emperor and whose wife and daughter and son had been killed. He's been playing anonymous until that moment. A bit like Jesus did. Jesus just came as this great, great healer and great teacher, but people didn't really know who he was. And then he revealed himself. And the enemy says to Maximus, won't you reveal yourself and tell us who you really are? And he pulls off his mask, and he, or, or his, his face covering, and he says, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north. I am a general. General of the Felix Legions, loyal servant of the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, not you, but the true emperor. Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. And if you are, if you're at all a student of the movies, it's an extraordinary moment. The whole, the whole the whole epic story tilts on that moment, because from that moment, he has no other choice. The enemy will take him and fight him. And so he, from that moment on, he is due an encounter with the enemy in the arena, and they'll fight to the death. This is what Jesus does. He reveals his identity, and he goes to the cross, and he fights to the death, and it looks like he's lost, but he's won. So that's what we're dealing with here, that depth of identity. Dare I believe it, Dare I believe, Michael, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. Surely that is a very, very special thing meant only for Jesus. Surely I can't apply that to myself. Well, yes and no. Because amazingly and wonderfully, Jesus does pass that glory on to me and on to you. And later on in verses 22, 23 of this chapter, which we'll come to in the next weeks, he'll say this, I have given them the glory that you gave me. I have given them, that's us, the glory that you gave me, that they, that's us, may be one as we are one, you and I, Father. I in them, Jesus in us, and you, Father, in me, Jesus, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. In other words, because I give them my glory, which you gave me, they become the people who will take your glory to the world. That's what Jesus is saying. Yes, I can hear, Michael, you are my son, in whom I am well pleased. Our purpose is tied up with our identity. Our purpose, Jesus says, is to be brought to complete unity so that the world will know that the Father has sent Jesus and has loved us in the same way. And this is only possible because Jesus 
gives us his glory. So let me finish with this. We have the same birthright, extraordinary, because we are made in God's image. So the glory that is the birthright of Jesus is also ours. We abandoned it, of course. Adam did this for us. But Jesus, by going to the cross, will restore it. And we become worthy again. We take back the glory that was ours before the dawn of the age, just as Jesus returns to the glory that was his. Remember, God knew us from before the dawn of time. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Psalm 139. Because of his death and his resurrection, we participate in his ascension and his glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, writes Paul. We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. So, what is my identity? What is your identity? Am I a sinner? Am I a loser? Am I a winner? Or just someone who tries? Am I successful? Am I a failure? My friends, these are all such earthly ideas and so full of judgmentalism. No. No, my name is Michael John, son of the living God, follower, close friend, and brother of Jesus Christ, his son, my Lord. Father to Lily, Maisie, Hal, and Gabriel, husband to Claire, prince in the kingdom, encourager of the faithful, herald of the good news, leader in business, facilitator of transformation, ambassador to the world's great business leaders, mentor of great warriors, and so much more. And God gives us this identity. That's mine. I could go on and on and on. The great thing is, all of it is true. All of it is true. So who are you? This question of all questions holds the key to your life and to mine. Jesus himself needed to know the answer. He heard it and he lived from it. And knowing his identity carried him to the cross and rescued us. If we consider nothing else this Lent season, then we should consider this. And when we really hear the answer, it really does change our lives, as only Jesus can. To him and him alone be glory with the Father and the Spirit, now and forever. Amen.